0: This year's Martin Luther King Jr. holiday has come at perhaps no better time to open up an opportunity to think a bit more deeply about race in the country. We saw, after all, at the beginning of the month, an attack on the very people and institutions charged with carrying out the business of democracy, inflamed by racial hatred, inexcusable political leadership, and social media. And in it all, financial technology is attracting attention too, highlighted by the insurrectionists' use of Bitcoin to fund their operations. But scrutiny of the industry is new. Indeed, Silicon Valley's FinTech ecosystem has attracted enormous attention about race, and not all of it good, that burrows far deeper into the culture of innovation as questions have been raised about the representation of black and brown people in an industry supposedly built on the ideals of democratizing finance for everyone. Now, perhaps the poster child for negative publicity is the crypto exchange Coinbase. Now, Coinbase is, as many of our listeners know, one of the highest profile names in the virtual currency space. And riding the wave of an explosion of interest in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies is set to go public in the upcoming months. But the exchange has been plagued by calls of racism and experienced its own Colin Kaepernick moment last fall when the company's CEO was accused of stifling attempts by employees to protest police brutality by issuing an ultimatum banning employees from political activism and discussions at work. The moves attracted international scrutiny and alarm from civil rights groups and activists alike that were only amplified when the New York Times reported data suggesting that the startup underpaid black and women employees. Now, in the initial wake of the outcry, I convened a panel at my annual FinTech Week conference to discuss the implications of the scandal for the company and the ecosystem. We had an all-star cast of participants, including Robert Greenfield, the CEO of Emerging Impact, Catherine Judge, a professor of law at Columbia, the MSNBC contributor and Georgetown law professor, Paul Butler, and Cleve Mesador, the founder of the Policy Network of Women of Color in Blockchain. The panel was a highlight of the conference and the lessons continue to reverberate as we grapple with questions of corporate responsibility, political discourse, and what it really means to fight the power. Thank you so very much to all of you. Uh, This conversation is timely and it's one that I know many people have had uh, uh, interest in, uh, particularly many of our our journalists and regulators and and others. Uh, Paul, you know, I I think I'm going to start off with you. Can you maybe talk to us a little bit about really where we're situated culturally? You know, it's, it's fascinating that you know, the murder of George Floyd, you know, is becoming a lightning rod and it has become a lightning rod, not only in the NFL, but now in, in, in Silicon Valley of all places. Um, why do you think it's become such an important sort of cultural moment? And, and, and why does it mean so much um, for the black community?
2: I had the opportunity to testify before Congress on the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And I wanted to let them know that there has never, not for one moment in American history, been peace between Black people and the police. And every time that we've abandoned the traditional civil rights protest and marching, and instead taken to burning things in the streets and attacking symbols of the state, has always been because of something that the police have done from Watts in 1965 to Baltimore to Minneapolis in 2020. Every time folks have risen up it's because the police have killed another black person. And so Chris, this isn't new for African-Americans, but what's different about this moment is that because of the success of the movement for black lives, we've been joined by our fellow citizens. The New York Times described this summer's protest as the most successful protest movement in the history of the United States. There was one day, June 6th, when there were a half a million people turned out in over 500 places across the United States. Four recent polls, the most conservative estimate is that 6% of Americans protested up to 10%, we're talking about 16 million to 26 million people who now get it. And so how do we make this go from being a moment to a movement? And one question is how did we get here? And that's in part a story about technology and it's specifically a story about technology in 2012. 2012 is the year that most Americans had smartphones smartphones are cameras, they're videos. What black people always knew, suddenly the whole world could see. And so Chris, for this conference, uh, I think a question is how do you use technology? How do you use disruption to advance racial justice in the way that smartphones helped us out? And it's entirely, a question that's appropriate for you because what the Movement for Black Lives says is that police are the symptom. The problem is white supremacy. The problem is patriarchy. And if we just work on the police, that's treating the symptom, it's not treating the disease. And so the question for you, economic, financial, economic growth, wisdom, Providers, is how do you use disruption? How do you use creativity to advance racial justice?
0: You know, th- that, that is, you know, I think, Cleve, that, that, that leads perfectly to you. You know, I mean, uh, certainly it's hard to emphasize, uh, you know, the degree to which black people have to live with, you know, certain kinds of, of, of pressures, uh, structural racism. Um, uh, and and certainly uh, the reality of of, of police brutality. Um, You know, many of the employees over at Coinbase, uh, not just uh, black employees, as as, as Paul uh, sort of noted, you know, felt very strongly about it um, and about the legacy uh, of of, of police brutality in particular. Uh, And and, and they wanted to, to protest. Um, f- from what you've been able to hear, Cleve, I mean, how exactly did sort of things play out um, uh, at Coinbase um, leading to uh, the, the, the announcement by the, the CEO, uh, Mr. Armstrong, to effectively say that he wants to, to get rid of political speech um, uh, at this unicorn, uh, arguably the most I- important um, financial institution within the cryptocurrency industry?
1: Well, good morning. Thank you, Chris, for your leadership for this conference and the opportunity to have this conversation. The Curious Case of Coinbase. It boils down to a lack of transparency, an attack on free speech, a crackdown on inclusion, and worker rights infringement. On September 27th, the CEO Brian Armstrong published a blog post invoking the name of Brianna Taylor to announce a new workplace policy, essentially to curtail internal activism. It was clear that the targets were black and brown workers. Two days later, staff received an email, essentially giving them a choice, comply or take a severance. All this during a pandemic and during an economic recession. Since then, we've learned that the internal workplace issues date back to 2019 when executives removed signs that allowed employees to choose and use whatever bathroom they felt comfortable with. And this happened without worker input. And then most recently, at the height of the George Floyd protest in June, there was an internal issue about a social media post about Black Lives Matter. As a result, Coinbase eliminated 5% of its staff, including top executives, a very diverse group, not all black, most of the black and brown employees couldn't make such a choice during a pandemic and a recession. Also what we've seen in terms of workplace dynamic, at least what has been reported because of the lack of transparency is uh, restrictions and limitations on communications there are reports that employees are being forced to retroactively remove past Slack messages. There was one report that noted that there was a recent internal state survey about the new policy, but executives have refused to share the results. Now, this is, this is quite a bit of entanglement. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so, so you know, just, just, so, so, so for those of those of, of you, uh, including myself, who are still trying to sort of grapple with with all the facts behind here. I mean, for, from an outsider looking in, it, it appears that it's it's uh, weirdly analogous to sort of the Colin Kaepernick kind of moment, right? Where 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 you basically have you know instead of saying you know you you can't kneel on the on the playing field, the the basic idea is you know. We don't want you to to voice, you know, some of your, your, your political views or or to protest, um, you know, within the confines of the workplace or anywhere sort of sort of near it. I mean, again, I hope I'm not mischaracterizing things, but that's that's more or less what I've been able to understand from from the, the media reports. And then after that announcement was made. Uh, uh, there was a very large uh, sort of sort of outcry. Um, some in Silicon Valley uh, uh, liked it because um, Brian Armstrong said we're sticking to the mission of our company, and that mission of the company, as he had defined it, had to do with uh, redefining. Uh, financial and, and payment services, more more or less, right? That, that that his company was going to be narrowly focused on this issue. That's what they do. We don't really do anything else. And, you know, many people responded against it. You had um, lots, as you had mentioned, of non-Black employees who felt very inco- uncomfortable with that. Um, and and uh, uh, There was a timeline that was given in terms of, you know, a severance package. You know, you either like it or leave it kind of uh, uh, approach. Some people did leave uh, at least 5% of the workforce left. Um, and then some people are still there and, and uh, would like to leave, but, but obviously even with their skills in the economy, they're, 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 I, I suppose, mulling what, what they're, they're looking to do with their next step. At least again, and, 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 Robbie, I mean, you, you can sort of let me know if I've gotten uh, any of that pr- uh, sort of narrative um, sort of wrong or or, or or mistaken. But I also wanted you, you know, because this does have very interesting sort of similarities with the NFL, you know, the difference, of course, being that when you're in the NFL, there are lots of black fans, as we heard in our last um in our last session, you know, when you get into fintech, when you get into crypto in particular, there are fewer Black people, and so there are fewer voices to sort of um, sort of push back in the same way that you would in, in other mature, larger national industries. But 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 what what are you seeing in terms of the impact on the goodwill or or, or, or brand of the company? I mean, it is kind of odd because you don't have as many Black people in Silicon Valley and, and in Coinbase in particular, um, but, but what are you seeing as, as the impact uh, most directly?
3: No, no, I, absolutely. I think the impact is, is that people are starting to see the irony of the direction of a lot of products within the blockchain space. And it's effectively taking form of the digital version of what we already had. Um, and for those who aren't familiar with the ethos of blockchain technology and what the overall mission was to do, was what Coinbase's stated mission is to do, to create a more open financial system, to make things more fair, more transparent. But you're not seeing that in any of the innovation landscape across um, decentralized finance or DeFi. More specifically, when you look at things like Coinbase Wallet and Coinbase.com, right? These are the gateways to a lot of these uh, other applications within the space um, and potential gateways toward uh, increased financial inclusion those people who are the least financially included or economically included are people of color, are black people, are Latinx um, communities. And of the 55 million Americans who are completely underbanked, right? uh, There's a great portion of that that audience that would greatly benefit uh, from having lower transaction fees, Coinbase's transaction fees, even if you look outside of their uh, communication strategy, which isn't great, are exceedingly high. Um, a lot of the ERC-20s, right, most of the portfolio of cryptocurrencies that are available on Coinbase, right, would not be possible if Ethereum had not existed. A, a blockchain, of course, across in, in, within the space. And you have one of the co-founders, one of the most notable co-founders of Ethereum, uh, Vitalik, who has also come out condemning system, uh, systemic racism more broadly. Um, and then of course, you know, last but not least, you know, outside of completely being unable to achieve financial inclusion and the development of open financial systems um, by effectively denying or de-emphasizing the importance of uh, the lives of people within diverse communities who need such inclusion. um, There's also an issue of, you know, a mission towards what. Uh, McKinsey & Company has already proven that companies with ethnically and sex-based more diverse uh, executive boards perform better, right? It, it, this is a fact. This isn't some conjecture that's that's made up. So yeah, you know, I, I think they're really missing, um, you know, the point that, in fact, allowing this type of speech, not politicizing human rights, right? You know, Black Lives Matter is a human rights issue. It is not a political issue because police brutality affects everyone. It does not just affect Black people. Um, making sure that those statements are strong, but also making sure that inclusive voices are heard would actually compel the company forward to improve its products, not to it. So I, I want to move
0: there, you know, is, you know, to that conversation uh, with Kate, because, you know, there's it, this is an interesting company because not just because of its importance in Silicon Valley, but it is a company that's looking to go public. And what we've heard from Robbie is, hey, you know, there's an interesting sort of business proposition and what we've heard in the last panel as well, um, insofar as companies want to have customers, that they want to scale. And in order to become profitable, you have to have a large customer base. And, and, and yet they're at this process where if they do go public, you know, being a lawyer, you know, you have to make disclosures about yourself. And you know, I, I was looking at the initial disclosures of Facebook, you know, and their S1, their initial disclosure document, you know, um, and and every company, whenever you go public, you have to sort of tell and disclose some of the the material risks that you may face when it comes to your profitability. And when I looked at, at Facebook's initial S1, they had a couple of lines. You know, one was our new products and changes to existing products could fail to attract or retain users or generate revenue. The other issue, if we are not able to maintain and enhance our brand, or if events uh, occur that damage our reputation and brand, our ability to expand our base of users, developers and advertisers may be impaired and our business and financial results may be harmed. You know, um, okay, you're a, a world famous Columbia law professor. You know, w- you know, when you think through just sort of the, the legal um, implications of sort of having made this kind of statement and, and, and doing so in the context of of going public, you know, uh, what do you see as any of the issues um, it, it, it involved with their IPO? And, and, and for that matter, sort of the larger responsibilities of the board uh, when they see these comments being made, uh, uh, you know, as the company is really thinking about scaling up?
4: Oh, no, that's great. And, and I think, you like you said, there's a host of issues that are raised here, and we can put them in two different buckets. So one is they're going to go public, and that means they not only need to provide a lot of detailed information about their financials, but they have to provide very granular information about the nature of the risks to which they are exposed. As Cleve beautifully laid out, they've already lost 5% of their workforce, potentially more. And this is in an incredibly depressed economic environment. You can imagine there's a lot of other employees who are looking for an opportunity to leave. And of course those are critical uh, to their skill base. So you're gonna have to look at that. As Robbie nicely went through, uh, there's a big issue here in terms of reputation and reputational risk, Uh, companies are, consistently having to disclose here's what different groups of potential clients think about us. Here's the way we might kind of grow our base, but here are also ways we might alienate that base. Those issues are going to have to be on the table and they're going to have to be part of the discussion. And going back to, to Paul's original point, I mean, I think we are at a moment where there's a, a growing recognition that if you're not part of the solution, you are potentially part of the problem. And so I think thinking about the, the reputational risk, it's not just about kind of, all right, how many black and brown people are in Silicon Valley and, and deeply involved in this space. But like the idea originally around this space was let's disrupt these structurally inequitable systems. Like, let's create something new. Let's create something that's more inclusive, that works for a broader group. And I think this raises real questions then about their business operations. And that nicely ties to your second point, that it's not just about the fact that they're going public, but as a member of the board, you have to think, okay, well, what is, you know, here's one person's vision. Is that really the best vision for the company? Is that going to be the most viable vision for the company? And you're also going to have to think about really basic issues like compliance. I mean, one of the things that we know about having a effective compliance system is there's a top-down component. It's about having good policies and educating people about those policies, but there's a really critical bottom-up component. You need to have an environment where people see problems or they see issues, they feel comfortable raising those issues of all different types. And so that might not be directly implicated here, but, but you do have to wonder is this a culture where people are going to feel safe and comfortable uh, identifying issues in a timely way and if I was a member of a board that's certainly something that that I would be concerned about right at this stage
0: you know you've <laughs> wow uh, not to to nerd out too much into law professor land but I mean in, in a very real way I mean there's some 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 interesting sort of business sort of issues and legal sort of hornets net, kind of issues that, that, that have been raised, you know, just, just Kate, from, from what you've said, I mean, um, sort of when you think about, okay, if you go public and you think about funds and you think about um, activist investors, you know, what does this do to the potential, you know, to your afterlife once you've gone public in terms of your activist investors, you know, when you think about ESG ratings and the increasing importance of ESG ratings, um, you know, that, that, that you may face once you decide to go public you know um and to go public with this we're not only going public as a as a company but you're going public with the policy that that a lot of people are are going to um, find problematic um uh, again as a matter of business strategy and 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 perhaps um from a moral standpoint you know the 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 interest yeah I'll, 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 one other thing is is that when you look at the the board issue you know you do have a lot of venture capital companies, including venture capital companies on Coinbase's board, like, like Andreessen and others, you know, and, and, and they're going to have to face a really interesting set of questions, too, which is, OK, if we're going to try to push this down to their portfolio companies, um, this may be OK uh, for the moment. But but what happens when we want to grow those companies and they become larger and you want to you know, put them in their life of going public? And especially even in a state like like California, where there are laws coming into effect with um, mandating diversity on boards. I mean, like, how? What does this do ultimately uh, to your to your ability to do what you're designed to do, which is which is to make profit? Uh, Cleve, you want to jump in?
1: Yes, I wanted to jump in on this whole conversation about disclosure and compliance, and you just brought up the lega- legality of it. The reality is. Coinbase is a federal contractor, and I can tell you, members of Congress, especially those active in the crypto space who have been engaging on this issue, are paying attention to this. I've had some conversations, and the lack of transparency from Coinbase about this has been particularly troubling which is why myself and folks like Ravi and others think that there should be a congressional inquiry because they fail to actually communicate to customers about what exactly is happening in this workplace culture. But I can tell you that, you know, for members of Congress who have really worked to ensure that there's diversity and inclusion in tech, they do not want to erode those, those inroads and progress. And, you know, and clearly what Coinbase is doing can set all of that
0: progress backwards. Yeah, you, you, there, there's certainly, and I, I have too. I've, i I've, I've heard from from people uh, on on the Hill about this as well. You know, Paul. You, you know, I, you know, when you hear this, this, this sort of uh, t- uh, tech uh, conversation, you know, and, and particularly when you hear the 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 uh, response from from Armstrong, um, or excuse me from the CEO about we're, we're going to focus on the this corporate mission, right, and this very sort of narrowly defined corporate mission. Um, uh, and we're not going to really get involved as a big business um, in, in, in not just social justice issues, but we're not even going to uh, sort of, we're going to limit the degree to which our employees can, can talk about it, well, certainly while, while on the job or, or elsewhere. Um, again, it, it, there's some resonance with, with the NFL, but, you know, given your vantage point and just your expertise, you know, how does this intersect historically with how companies have engaged with or detracted from uh, civil rights issues?
2: It's old school, it's so 1980s, 1990s. What we've seen in recent prompts is in the fight to preserve affirmative action so that everybody has a fair chance. Many corporations stepped up. They stepped up because it was the right thing to do, but they also stepped up because it was good for their business and the fight for LGBT equality to first stop the government from kicking gay people out of the military and then for marriage equality, a lot of corporations stepped up because it was the right thing to do and also because it was good for their business. And so now almost every huge corporation, medium-sized corporation has put out a statement in favor of the movement for Black lives. The question is, are they just talking the talk or how can we make them walk the walk?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, Robbie, you know what you've seen. I mean, you've been engaged in not only sort of uh, uh, this particular Coinbase issue, but obviously, I mean, both you and Cleve have been very uh, active in just sort of the conversation um, on diversity in crypto and in fintech and in digital payments more generally. Robbie, I mean, when, when you when you hear this 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 particular conversation, um, you know, how much of of Coinbase's Attitude? Um, do you see as uh, risking a kind of a copycat sort of mentality with some of, of them? I mean, it, it is a big company. Uh, on the other hand, you've had some really notable uh, members in the tech community being very forceful in terms of their 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 pushback. Uh, people like Jack Dorsey, uh, folks over at Twitter. Um, you know, like what do you how do you see this playing out in Silicon Valley? Um, again, we have a kind of a perspective where I live out in Washington, DC, and we know what happens when companies get big enough to become noticeable, uh, uh, but, 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 you know, for the smaller companies who, maybe not, who are not necessarily thinking more than one or two steps ahead, I mean, how do you think this conversation is going to impact, um, uh, you know, the back and forth, going to impact how startups in, in FinTech sort of tackle this question of, of diversity and, and inclusion?
3: Absolutely. I mean, I I think it's a a two prong question. I think for Coinbase directly, it's going to um, threaten them losing market share and emerging economies that I know that they're going after because they have um, smaller subset social enterprises like GiveCrypto, right, which focus on humanitarian aid in places like Venezuela. So when we talk about black and brown people, (laughs) Venezuelans are certainly, you know, a constituting part of the the latter. Um, But also when you look at other exchanges, right, like Kraken and um, Binance, for example, which has a lot of their activities in the continent of Africa, There are threats, there are other exchanges that are thinking about diversity through their products much more than Coinbase is. And with their current stance with regards to mission focus, um, they're actually alienating those huge swaths of communities which if we've seen what's happening in Nigeria are experiencing the exact same issues uh, in the United States. And again, it proves that this is not a political issue. It is a human rights issue that is happening no matter what color the police are. Um, with regards to the broader space in general, the regards to de-emphasizing diversity. Is-
0: yeah, I, I, I think, uh, Robbie, your, 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 feed is, is slowing down a bit, but I did want to pick up in this one issue about Nigeria. I mean, you know, what I had, 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 heard from was, you know, Coinbase is, is trying to set up a, a, a Nigeria office and, and, you know, People in Nigeria kind of care about Black Lives Matters out in, in, in Nigeria, and, and, and they kind of care about, um, you know, uh, 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 this conversation. Uh, maybe they're taking it from a, a different historical context, but they're extremely well aware of it. And, and, and it, it, it's one of those questions about, well, again, um, you know, this paradox of how do you scale, right, and create customizable solutions? And if you create policies that inhibit your ability to scale, Especially while you're trying to go public, you know what does what does this this ultimately mean? I know, Cleve, I, I saw you you were trying to jump in to say something.
1: Yes, no, it, it's an important point right now. You know, the N SARS movement on on social media, certainly on Twitter, is being led by a lot of you know people in the crypto space, a lot of crypto engineers, you know, on the continent of Africa, and here. And it's interesting because. Yeah, Yesterday I posted, you know, thank God those people don't work for Coinbase because would this be allowed? But at oh. the end of the day, I, I do like what Robbie said, at the end of the day, this is a human rights issue. And and for Coinbase to, you know, draw a line in the sand like this, it's not just a poor business decision. It's just out of touch.
0: Yeah. yeah Katie, I, I think we'll have the last word with you. I mean, you have... I mean, I, I know you're not dispensing any any legal advice uh, to Coinbase at this point in time, but you know, if, if you had any thoughts about you know companies and and their positions and the you know and and what they may face in emerging industries like fintech, I mean, you have any thoughts as as to sort of the the to dos and, and and what they should be thinking about uh, Coinbase or or or, or others.
4: I think Thieve hit it right on when she talked about the historical moment. I mean, you have to be aware to the historical moment. And as you pointed out earlier, uh, Silicon Valley investors might not be there right at this moment, but they're eventually going to need an exit, right? And if you need an exit, you need to understand both where your, your customers are, but where other investors are. And the move towards things like ESG show a lot of investors care quite a bit, not just about the bottom line. And again, I think the bottom line be by by these type of policies, but, but also how you're getting there and the values that you're purporting uh, to live by in the process. So I, mean, I think that if, if you're out of touch, it's, it's going to cost you. And the people who, who start to appreciate where we are and what we're going through more quickly are going to benefit from that.
0: As a law professor, I'm frequently asked about my opinion about Coinbase, and I can safely say that I can recall only a few times where a company has so willingly inflicted such needless pain upon itself, especially before going public. I just didn't see any upside. And ultimately, when you do take a stand like this, it tells you something about the culture and the values of the place. And for many people, especially longer-term investors, I think that matters. But I do think it provides important lessons for Silicon Valley companies with their eye on the future. All too often, founders forget that, as the great postmodern philosopher Stan Lee said, with great power comes great responsibility. And one feature or component of success and power is that they will inevitably attract more attention and greater expectations just as they begin to need more goodwill and trust from society. So when the New York Times released its own article about the firm, noting employment and pay disparities for women and minorities, I couldn't help but wonder what it would mean for Coinbase in the long run. Can a company maximize shareholder value when it estranges its very employees and engineers? Can they grow when prospective overseas markets, those precisely who may be interested in cross-border payments infrastructures, would rather transact elsewhere? And how will they communicate with investors about those risks, especially in a world where values, well, just mean a lot more to people? The answers aren't obvious, but for the sake of the industry, I hope they can come up with some good ones. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer, D-R. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.